Please be seated. Our scripture lesson today comes from Romans chapter 6, 12 through 19. As we come into the presence of God, just like we, when we first met someone, the most powerful moment is the one where we hear them speak. Hear now as God speaks from his word. Again, it's from Romans chapter 6, 12 through 19. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to disobedience, or to obedience, sorry, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using, using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, heading to holiness. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. So, if you weren't with us last week, um, well, so we've been preaching through the book of Romans more than last week, I guess, but this year, um, and Paul spends the first five chapters of Romans explaining this one big idea which is that we are not saved by being good or obedient or righteous. We are not saved by avoiding sin or doing good works or any of that. We're only saved by God's free grace given to us in Jesus. And the natural question arises then, well, okay, so why do we obey then? If we as Christians are called to good and obedient and righteous lives and to avoid sin and do good works— If we're called to all of that, but we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, why, how does that work? And Paul started answering that question last week by explaining this idea of our union with Christ and how we are spiritually joined to Jesus in his death and resurrection. But that's only part of his answer to that question. And like we said last week, this sermon and the next one really fit with that one as sort of like this mini-series trying to answer that question of why do we obey? What are the right motives for obeying God. So as we come to this text now this morning, would you pray with me? Father, I just lift us up to you, that you would teach us to obey you rightly, that we would repent of all of our moralisms and legalisms and ways we try to justify ourselves, but that we might come into the freedom and hope of the obedience that you have truly called us to in Jesus Christ. Pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So, the book 1984 by George Orwell. Um, It is looked at by many, many people as one of the most kind of brilliant and terrifying pictures of this sort of grim future that's ever been written. And I could go on for a while about that book. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in it. But as I was thinking about this text, I found myself thinking about 1984 and a particular theme in it. So that book was written, it's, it's about this totalitarian state, right, that controls its citizens in every imaginable way. It aims to have absolute power over every part of their lives. And as the familiar phrase tries to remind them, Big Brother is watching. But Orwell builds this kind of absolutely totalitarian world and stresses that that world wouldn't work if you just tried to kind of keep people in line by force, right? If it was just sort of police and military force trying to to wield that power. People are going to rebel still, even if only in little or private ways. And so to have absolute control, what you have to do is change how people think. So the state in Orwell's book is absolutely committed to thought control. It rewrites the histories every year or two to better fit the party line. Um, It changes the English language. It makes any word that is imaginative or invites kind of like people to think of great or grand things out of the language. Two plus two, the party insists, equals five in Orwell's book. And the reason for that thought control is really important if you read it, because it stems from a recognition that the way to keep people most in slavery is to convince them that they aren't slaves at all, to persuade them that slavery is really just normal life, or that it's best, or that it has always been so. The main character of the book, Winston, he puts it like this. He says, The masses never revolt of their own accord, and they never revolt merely because they are oppressed. Indeed, so long as they are not permitted to have standards of comparison, they never even become aware that they're oppressed. And that's what makes the world that Orwell pictures so scary, if you read the book. Because it's not that people fear Big Brother, it's that people love Big Brother in his book. And they're trapped by that love, and they're slaves to this machine. As Winston states it at another point in the book, until they become conscious, they won't rebel And until after they rebel, they can never become conscious of their slavery. And that, in a sense, is how the Bible pictures our relationship with sin. Except it's not just some future world, right? It's the way Scripture pictures all of us right now without the work of Christ. It says that 1984 is sort of like our story in relation to sin in the flesh. It all starts with this claim that Paul makes in this text— He says that without Jesus, we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to sin. That's really the theme that weaves through this text. And so what I want to do this morning is just look at that claim and um, help us to see it and believe it. And then after that, see how instead we as Christians are called to something different. First, that idea that we are slaves to sin. So look with me at verse 16. Paul says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? So Paul says, don't you see this, right? They're supposed to see this. And what he says is, don't you see that when you offer someone or yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're that thing's slave. If you make yourself a slave to something, if you live like you're a slave to something— then you are. 
So the first thing that we need to recognize when we talk about being slaves to sin is that slavery to sin is voluntary. Our slavery is voluntary. We choose it. When we hear the language of being a slave to sin, I think we often picture something involuntary. We picture sort of shackles and whips and people being dragged off against their wills. And that is because, in part, our nation has this particularly brutal and oppressive tradition of slavery, which is full of those images. But Paul's writing in a world where slavery was a little more commonplace and complicated than that. Some of your Bible translations might instead render the word servant, and that's because slavery and being a servant in Paul's world were really the same thing. If you weren't part of kind of the rich, productive class, you were owned by somebody else. And so for some people, that was an oppression that they were dragged into, but for plenty of people in Paul's world, that was kind of a choice that they made. They couldn't, um, you know, feed themselves or take care of themselves or they were in debt, and so they would choose to become slaves. But even if it's voluntary, that person still owns you. Part of the brilliance of Orwell's 1984 and the picture it gives of that slavery is that people, the people aren't in chains in that book. They obey, in a sense, freely, but they do it because their slavery runs deeper than their bodies. It's a slavery of their minds and hearts. So if you offer yourself to something, to do what it tells you to do, Paul says, you're living as that thing's slave. And that ties into why Paul describes that slavery this way in verse 12 then. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Sin reigns in us, Paul says, not reigning from the outside in. Sin reigns in our mortal bodies. It somehow affects our being and our flesh, and it affects us in a way that makes us obey its evil desires, which starts to tell us there's a second thing. It's not just that it's voluntary, but our slavery to sin is internal. Our slavery is internal. There are two ways to get your kids to do something. I don't know if you've picked this up. I've slowly learned this over the years. One is to try to get them to do it by force. You, you, you know, you kind of take them and you drag them into the room and you shut the door and you tell them they can't come out until they clean it, right? You try to just force them to do what you want them to do. And there are times when you have to do that in parenting. But um, if you've ever had kids or worked with kids, you know that doesn't work very well. The other way is to change how your kids feel instead. And this, I've learned, is what wiser parents do. They enthusiastically instead say, hey guys, we're going to clean our room. And they, they make it a game or a race or something. They sing a song about it, clean up, clean up, or something like that. And that doesn't always work. But when that works with your kids, it's way more effective than trying to do it by force. You're actually changing what they want to do, and then they do it gladly. And that is how sin works in our hearts. The world and the flesh and the devil, the things that scripture says tempt us, they never threaten us. Instead, they say, they, they never say, like, listen, you little brat, you better sin or else, right? Instead, they say, doesn't this look nice? Look at this thing. Don't you want this thing? Won't it make you feel good or safe or significant? Sin, since the Garden of Eden, has never spread through threats, but it's always spread instead through good advertising. So this is then how our slavery actually works. Our sin works in us and makes us desire things. 
We want pleasure or comfort or approval or power or vindication or escape or whatever. And connected to that, we want specific things to satisfy those desires. We want food or drink or sex or money or that gadget or revenge in some way that God does not allow. So sin sells us these things and then we give ourselves to them. We obey and choose those desires. It works from the inside out. Some of you might be thinking, if that's true, if our slavery to sin is voluntary and internal, we might think, well, does that actually sound that bad? I mean, isn't that, in a sense, freedom? We're being free to choose what we desire, which is why Paul stresses that in spite of that, our slavery is still slavery. Our slavery is still slavery, despite not being as obvious as we might think. Look at the beginning of verse 13. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. So Paul's saying that sin gives us these desires and we offer parts of ourselves up to it, right? Parts of our bodies, our eyes and hands and feet. He says we give them to sin to become instruments, to become tools for sin. That as much as we think we're choosing what we want, we're really just being tools in the hands of a cruel master. Which is why we started with that idea that the best way to oppress people is to convince them that they aren't oppressed at all. To alter their minds and hearts before you enslave their bodies. Sin warps our hearts, turns them to its own ends, but that doesn't mean that we aren't its slaves. Just because we love Big Brother, it doesn't mean that we're free. I say all of that. And I think some of us feel it, but some of us sometimes struggle to. So let me just try to put it this way instead. All right, sin is a cruel master that takes and takes from us. And we're simply blinded to its cruelty and how much it demands. I mean, we spend spend millions of dollars, offer them up to, to our sinful desires. And I don't mean like collectively, I mean like individually over the course of your life, many of us spend millions of dollars. I mean, how many things have we bought chasing the rush of greed or the promise of security? How much of, of, of what I spend on my house and my wardrobe and my car is being spent not to like satisfy my needs, but to feed my ego or to, 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 to show my status? To make my neighbors be impressed or my rivals feel bad. How much food and alcohol and medication have we bought out of the years out of a desire to, not, not out of a desire to enjoy God's good gifts, but out of a desire to stuff our faces and forget our fears? How much have we spent on cosmetic dentistry and exercise equipment and makeup not to steward our bodies, but to serve them as idols. How much of our economy, think, I mean, just how much of the economy in the United States would exist if we actually lived out the call of Scripture that godliness with contentment is much gain? In the name of following our desires, we have sacrificed so much to sin. In the name of, not, of comfort, not rocking the boat, we've sacrificed often our honor and our integrity We've stood by while people are harmed or torn down or we've even joined in it. In the name of making our bodies feel good or our hearts forget, some of us have sacrificed our families and marriages. In the name of making us feel powerful or significant or just getting a lot of money, others of us have sacrificed those same families and marriages. In the name of other people's approval 
We spend thousands of hours of our lives in front of mirrors and at gyms, and for some of us, leaning over toilets or undergoing surgeries just to make people like us on the outside in the name of avoiding feeling bad. Many of us have drunk more than we should or taken pills that we shouldn't have or eaten well past the point of comfort or just blurred out evening after evening staring at the television. And that's a very incomplete list of the costs that our slavery has inflicted on us. And I know that some of us hear all of that and feel heavy with guilt. And I wrestle with naming things like that that directly because I don't say that to make you feel guilty. The good news of the gospel is that we're free from guilt in Jesus. Paul even reminds us of that in verse 14 of our text. He says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law, but under grace. I don't point out the cost of our slavery in order to make us be legalists, but, but we have to name those costs, because so often the key to what keeps us enslaved is that we are blinded to them. The first step toward freedom is always seeing and telling the truth. Several people very close to me um, are addicts and um, struggle with different addictions and are in 12-step programs. And the very first thing that they tell you in those programs is that before you can make any progress, before you can actually start to fight this addiction that you're struggling with, you have to hit rock bottom. You have to kind of be confronted with the reality of the choices that you're making. Because the problem is that for many of those people wrestling with addiction, right, they'll, they'll tell you that in the moment they're blind. You know, they look, they look at that glass of scotch or they look at those pills and they're not thinking about the costs, right? They're not actually weighing what this will do to their family and their, you know, and their life and their job and the things that they love. That thing is all that they can see. So they have to be brought to a place where instead they, they recognize what it's costing them. They recognize what it's doing to them before they can start to fight it and change. And sin works like that. A big part of the power of sin lies in trying to convince us that we're not slaves at all, that we're just following our desires and doing what we want. We have to name that slavery for what it is. So we are, without Jesus, slaves to sin. And that's half of what Paul is saying, right? And that's already starting to answer the question again of why should we obey? He's saying, because you don't want to be slaves like that, right? You don't want that if you really see it for what it is. But what he doesn't then say is, so just stop being enslaved. Instead, as Paul seeks to give an answer, he tells us that we need instead to be slaves to Christ. We need to be slaves to Jesus instead. And I know that might sound like a weird way to answer it, right? But before we talk about that, just look, look at the text with me to see it. So, for example, if you read verse 13, Paul says, Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Or verse 19, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. Paul offers us this as the choice that he says we have. He says we are offering ourselves as slaves to sin, and we should instead offer ourselves as slaves to Jesus. 
which a lot of us don't like, right? Because what we want instead is for the second point to be, be free, right? Just go be free. And in a sense, that is what Paul is saying, right? But for Paul, freedom is actually the same thing as being a slave to Christ. So if you look at verse 18, he says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. For Paul, the process of becoming free is actually the same thing as the process of becoming a servant of the Lord Jesus. See, here's the problem. What is freedom? I think our instinct is to define it as, if you try to give a definition, it's something like self-determination, right? Which means the the right to just choose for yourself what you're going to do and what you want to think and do. And politically, that's probably an okay definition. But on a deeper level, that idea is problematic because like we said, sin enslaves our desires, not just forces us to do actions. And that means that the problem isn't that we don't have self-determination. The problem is that we are, we, we're free to, be, to self-determine, but ourselves are being warped and shaped by evil. The only way to address that sort of slavery is to have something else at work in our hearts, something that we give ourselves to instead. If I could come back to Orwell's 1984, I really was thinking about it a lot this week. This is the thing that makes the book so devastating, right? Okay, so let me just back up now and tell you this very briefly the story of this book. So there's this guy named Winston, and he lives in this totalitarian state, and he starts to rebel in kind of some little ways. And he then starts to piece together some pieces of true history and ends up meeting and having an affair with this lady and they kind of run off together and then he meets this guy named O'Brien which is part of this secret resistance against the state and Winston reads these forbidden works and puts it all together and really works out what's going on, right? Works out the slavery that they are under and you think, if you're a good American reader, that you know where this story is going, right? That's book one and two, and book three is going to be like, you know, the, the revolution and freedom coming to everybody. But that's not how the story goes in 1984, because that O'Brien that he meets is actually a member of the Thought Police, and Winston and Julia, the woman that he's with, are both arrested, and they're re-educated, and they betray each other. And the novel ends with Winston restored to society and happily a slave once more. He's standing underneath this gigantic mural of Big Brother and here's the final lines of 1984 and he gazed up at the enormous face. O cruel, needless misunderstanding. O stubborn, self-willed exile from the loving breast. Two tears trickled down the sides of his nose. But it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He'd won the victory over himself. He loved Big brother. So in 1984, freedom doesn't win, and slavery ends up being the thing that wins. And that's there because of this point that Orwell, I think, is trying to make in the book. Because Orwell understands that the kind of self-slavery that he pictures, right, the kind of slavery that messes with your mind and with your heart, just trying to be free, just trying to trust in yourself and your self-determination That's not a big enough thing to get you out from under its thumb. Sin is bigger than you and me. The only way to be free from it will rest not in kind of just looking to ourselves, but rather in finding something else that's even bigger that we can give ourselves to instead. So to give ourselves to God. Here's what that looks like in practice. If you look at verse 19. 
Paul says, Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. He says we're supposed to offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness instead of slaves to sin. But there's three really important things about that verse and the way it describes this process. First, in that verse and in this passage, it starts with our actions, which is interesting, I think. It starts with our actions. So Paul does not change us or tell us to change our desires. You notice that? He talks about how sin warps our desires. The process of slavery to sin is that sin entices us and makes us want evil things, and we choose to do those things. It works from the inside out. But when Paul talks to us as believers about obeying righteousness, what he starts talking about is the outside. Why is that? Well, it's not because our heart and our desires don't matter, okay? Um, They do, and we need to obey from the heart. We're actually going to touch on that a little more in a minute, But what Paul, I think, would tell us is, is A, he he would say that our hearts aren't something that we can change, right? You can't kind of like open up your heart and rewire it yourself. But more than that, B, Paul's argument would be that our hearts have already been changed in the ways that matter. So if you look at verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin... You've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. That you were slaves to sin, Paul says, but now you're obeying from the heart a teaching, God's righteous calling, that has already claimed your allegiance. And this is where we need to make a very important distinction in what we've been saying. Because I, don't, I haven't made it as clear as it could be yet. We talk about being slaves to sin, Right? And Paul says two things about that, really, if you follow his argument in this text. One of those things is that without Jesus, that's all that any of us are. We are slaves to sin, right? But with Jesus, our problem is not that we are just slaves to sin. Our problem is that we are still behaving like slaves to sin. Here's why that's important. We can sometimes fail to do what God calls us to do because we think that... um, that our hearts are still only evil, that they're sort of trapped and snared by sin. And we think that we need to wait to obey until kind of God comes and changes our hearts in such a way that obedience is the thing that's going to come naturally to us, right? As long as we want to do evil things, we feel like we're still slaves to sin. But if you were with us last week, one of the things Paul stresses in the first part of Romans 6 is that for believers, sin's power is broken, it still tempts us and draws us and, you know, and, and is at work in the world and in our hearts, but its power over us is broken. God has worked and is working the change that is necessary for us to obey. Not that we don't still desire sin, not that we aren't still tempted by it, but that for us its slavery over us is broken. And so what we need to do is start living like that. And so the solution then is to act rather than to wait around and kind of wait for ourselves to never be tempted or never desire sin paul would tell us you aren't slaves anymore so start acting like you aren't think about think about me sitting this is like every night i suppose but like sitting at the kitchen table and the kids are going to bed and i'm like reading a book or something right And there's this thing that happens in that moment where I know that I should get up from the table and 
clean, you know, the house and kind of help Elizabeth by, you know, helping pick up and stuff, but I'm tired and part of me doesn't want to. Part of me wants to keep sitting there, right? Think about me in that moment. My temptation in that moment might be to say, Jesus, change my desires, right? Um, make, me, make my heart want to clean. But I think the reason Paul addresses our actions is because we, we know what will happen if I just keep praying that prayer, right? Which is that I will keep sitting at that table. What I need to do in that moment is recognize that God is at work in me in such a way, and I am free in such a way that I can seek to start to act out of that, and then to get up off my rear and start cleaning, right? To, um, to recognize that I don't have to sit there. I'm not chained there. And the question that I have to start to answer is about my actions and my choices. Am I going to give myself as a servant to myself in that moment or as a servant to Elizabeth and to God? But that actually helps highlight the second thing about the verses, which makes sense then to how this connects to our hearts. So if you look again at verse 19, he says, Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. There's something interesting about the way Paul says that happens. On both sides of the equation, Paul's not just talking about being slaves, but somehow also becoming more of a slave. So he says, don't offer yourself as a slave to impurity because it causes you to grow in wickedness, but offer yourself as a slave to righteousness because it causes you to grow more holy. So somehow Paul's saying our actions actually change our hearts. Our actions change our hearts. So here's the thing about when I'm sitting at that table with Elizabeth that's interesting, is that in the moment when, you're, when you ought to serve somebody out of love, oftentimes you don't want to. Um, and you don't, you don't feel particularly like serving them. But if you get up and start to serve them, one of the things, at least I feel like I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this, is that the feelings often start to follow. That oftentimes, in the moment, I don't feel like loving or serving my wife, but as I get up and start to serve her, I suddenly start to feel an affection and a love for her that I wasn't feeling before. Sin, in scripture, is a downward spiral. Sin leads to more sin. The more you give yourself to it, the more power that it gets over you. But the opposite in scripture is also true. Righteousness is, I guess, an upward spiral The more that you live into it and seek to pursue it in your life, the more that your desire for it grows in your heart, the more you start to live it out. And so Paul calls us to seek to act like we're not slaves, to give ourselves to Christ rather than righteousness, in part because Christ has already changed our hearts, and in part because the further change that God wants us to experience in our hearts, one of the main ways that comes is through us seeking to obey and follow God like exercise, I guess. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have ever tried to start exercising after years of not exercising, Um, but the first time when you start out doing it, it's miserable, right? Like truly miserable. And that does not change suddenly overnight either. I mean, it's not, you know, I, I kind of tried to restart exercising and the first day I went out, you know, for a run and came home and I was tired and Elizabeth was like, but doesn't that feel good? And I was like, no, that doesn't feel good. I'd rather be like stretched out on a rack or something. But what they all tell you, and it's because it's true, is that if you continue to act out of that, if you continue to pursue that, right, 
suddenly your desires do start to change a little bit. And you feel like you're crazy, but a couple months later, you're suddenly like, man, I really got to make time to go for a run. (laughs) Your heart changes because of those actions. And righteousness in Scripture, in part, works like that. That it's never not going to take discipline, and it's never not going to be hard, and there's never not going to be temptation. But that as we seek to act out lives in service to Christ, our desire for him actually grows. So that's two realities about how we live out being slaves to Christ. Let me offer just one more. Our actions are actions. They're actions, which is to say we're not called to just not sinning when we talk about being slaves to Christ. We're called to something positive. So if you look at the second half of verse 13, Paul says, But rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument, a tool of righteousness. So remember we said that what happens in sin is that we're kind of giving our bodies to sin so that sin can use us, right, to do evil as tools for evil. And what we're called to do instead is to offer those same parts of ourselves to God to be tools in his hands to work righteousness. The way we talk often, holiness and righteousness, and living for Jesus, I think what we feel is just sort of that that's a call to avoid bad stuff, right? That there's this list of don't do these things. And it's true that part of righteousness is is seeking not to sin, but that doesn't really fit with Paul's imagery here. When he says throughout this text, right, he's not saying instead of doing these things for sin, don't do them. He's saying instead of doing this stuff that makes you a slave to sin, instead do this, live this out that makes you a slave to righteousness. Which is to say that if our attempts to fight sin focus on just avoiding sin, they're doomed to fail. Let me try to show you why I think that's important. If I describe a place as a den of iniquity, as a breeding ground for sin, what kind of place pops into your head, right? If you're kind of a traditional church person, it's probably something like that, right? Or maybe like that, or I guess the way some people talk these days, maybe it looks instead like that, right? Those are the kinds of places that people picture as breeding grounds for sin. And obviously temptation can come in those and many other places. But the place that I think is the greatest breeding ground for sin, the greatest den of iniquity in our world, is that. Either literally or figuratively. Many of my struggles boil down to this, right? I'm sitting on the couch, maybe just metaphorically and maybe for real, and sin comes and tempts me, and what I do is I say, no, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sin. But I keep sitting on the couch, and a minute or two later, sin comes back, and it says, but you know, like, don't you really want to do this? And maybe I say no again, but a minute or two later, it comes back, right? One of the realities in scripture, if we just picture righteousness as only avoiding sin, is that as long as we're sitting on that couch, eventually the temptation is going to win. Instead, the best way to fight against sin is to pursue active righteousness, to go in here instead, right, and, and start getting to work, trying, trying to serve and care for your home, or to go out and you know, spend some time serving other people, right? Or even just to go out in creation and worship God and praise him and pray to him. That by actively living out the sort of righteousness that God calls us to, to loving him and to loving people in proactive ways, it's actually the greatest tool we have for fighting against the temptation of sin. 
So let me try to sum all of that up, all right? Back to our question, remember, that we're answering again today. Why obey? Why pursue righteousness? Well, first, Paul would tell us it's because we are no longer slaves to sin, and so we shouldn't want to live like it. That sin is a cruel master that takes and takes and takes from us, and we've been set free from it, so we ought not live as its slaves. And that if that's true, then we should obey, because that's the only way to really be free from sin's slavery. The only way to find true freedom is to give ourselves to God as his servants. Or if I could come back to George Orwell maybe one last time, right? The world that he paints of that oppressive state, nobody should want to live there. Nobody should want to be enslaved by that place. But the truth is that as long as we choose to live there, right, Big Brother is going to be watching, and we are ultimately going to become its slaves. But move! That is what Paul calls us to. He says that Jesus has set you free from sin's tyranny, so leave. Leave that cruel country And come instead to the kingdom of our Lord. Come into Christ's country and find freedom from sin's reign in the rule of God our King. Would you pray with me? Father, I acknowledge that there are so many ways that I and that all of us give ourselves still to sin, even though its power is broken. I pray that you would speak to us the truth that you have set us free, and that in you, And serving and loving you and serving and loving those that you have created, we might find the true freedom of the life that you call us into. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, who broke the power of sin and whose kingdom we now dwell. Amen.